welcome back to Barn Banter, the podcast for children's musicians by a children's musician who doesn't have any children to play for. Well, no, I have plenty of children to play for. I just don't play for them live. They have to listen to my recorded material, which is very convenient when you come to think about today's guest. Today's guest, if I'm not mistaken, and I'm going to let them explain their own story, but I do believe that they started out as a drummer back in the 80s playing punk rock. Which, of course, is how every great rock and roll story should start. Where does it end? It ends, of course, where it's supposed to. And this is, and no offense, but it's, it ends at the top. On your podcast. On my podcast. <laughs> at the top of the corporate ladder, right? Oh, oh, <laughs> no, that's not rock and roll. No, but it couldn't be any more rock and roll. Today, we're going to be chatting with Tony Van Veen. He's the CEO of DIY Media Group. They do things like uh, Disc Makers and Book Baby and Merchly and they had an association with CD Baby we'll talk a little bit about. And uh, Tony's agreed to come on the old barn banter today to, uh, to give us some tips and tricks about building your base, marketing. You know what? We're just going to pick his brain and see where the conversation goes and see uh, see what it's like to be someone who's so cool. Hello, Tony. Welcome to the show. Hey, Andy. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. At the, at the, at the, at where it ends. That's it. That's it. You've arrived. Congratulations. It's like the, the star <laughs> that you don't have to pay the, uh, the annual fee for. Let's, I gave you a little bit of an intro, but why don't we jump back? Tell me a little bit about where, where you started and, and how you ended up leading one of the more interesting and influential organizations in the independent music business. Well, uh, short story long, um, you know, when I, when I came to college, I actually grew up in Aruba and I came to the U S to go to college. And, um, I, you know, I, I grew up as a kid playing saxophone and, uh, but I always wanted to be a drummer. And, uh, as a freshman in college, I happened to be on the dorm floor with a couple of guys, friends of mine who, were really into punk rock and they invited me to go to a punk rock gig one day. And um, I said, sure, I had nothing else to do. And, uh, you know, we went to this gig and there was a bunch of kids and, you know, the music started and it, it was like the most awful noise I'd ever heard in my <laughs> life. And like, it was, it was noise, it was loud. And then like, I was so green. I'd never heard punk rock before. I literally was, an island boy, right? Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, I'd never heard punk rock before. And so I, um, you know, I kind of moved to the back of the room. And when the mosh pit started, I thought a big fight had broken. Uh -huh. So, you know, that was, that was quite an awakening for me and an introduction to the world of punk rock. But, you know, I met some cool kids. Two weeks later, there was another gig. I went again and so on. And so, like, a month or two into this, like, I had some friends who wanted to start a band. And I'm like, this is my chance to be a drummer. It's punk rock. How hard can it be? Right. <laughs> and, and so um, my quote unquote audition was the first time I actually ever sat behind a trap kit, mm. but I had rhythm and uh, you know, I could keep a beat and uh, you know, fake enough of a drum roll. I practice on my desk in my dorm and, you know, uh, and so uh, I got the gig and I, I literally learned to play being in this band. And so over the course of, you know, the next few years, we started writing songs, which was a mind blowing experience when my guitarist one day said, Hey, shall we write a song? I was like, 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 wait, you don't have to go to Berkeley college of music or Juilliard. To, to Are we allowed? Are we allowed to write songs? Is that okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I found out in punk rock writing songs involves actually no actual writing. Um, Right, you just re rehearse a bunch of riffs over and over, and like oh, that sounds good. Oh, let's 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 glue this riff to that riff, and this riff is verse, and this riff is chorus. Um, and but you know, we went into recording studio, we got our own records pressed, we gigged, we booked our own tours, and this was an incredibly empowering experience for me. Like this was all it was like a parallel universe to the music business with booking agents, with clubs with radio DJs, with, you know, manufacturers, with graphic designers, with people who are making flyers and doing promotion, all run by kids between 17 and 25 years old, mm -hmm. right? The old heads in the scene were 24, 25. Uh, and I was, you know, 18, 19, 20. And um, 
And so when I graduated, I, I, I went to the Wharton School of Business. Punk rock kept me in, it kept me sane. Um, and when I graduated, I was like, I, this is what I want to do. I want to work in the record business. Um, and I sent out a hundred applications and one was to Disc Makers, which was at the time, 1987, this was a small local vinyl record pressing factory in Philadelphia and I'd gone to school in Philly. Uh, and so I sent in a resume cold. They, they weren't looking for, for you know, any, any staff, uh, but I figured it's record pressing, it's local, could be a good start. And, um, you know, the owner called me in and I, I was what he was looking for. He needed somebody to help him get the business to grow. Uh, and he had seen, this was, again, remember, this was 1987. We were mid-80s. This was when the record industry, due to technology changes, was going through huge change. Uh, companies like Mackie, et cetera, were springing up that allowed affordable home and project studios to come up so that kids like me could afford to do their own recording, right? Before that, it was all, you know, these big fancy recording studios with a mixing console the size of a mattress. Mm -hmm. And um, and you had to be signed to a label in order to be able to afford those. And so it was the start, the embryonic start of the DIY music revolution that, that's really today, this is how business works, right? And so I had been that client who had gone into the studio and pressed my records and, and uh, the owner of Disc Makers at the time was trying to pivot from being a commodity, low-priced pressing plant for record labels, who are, by the way, really difficult clients, to figuring out how to add value and, and make it easy for independent artists who want to release their own content to do it themselves mm -hmm. and, and offer that service. And so I was, I was kind of a perfect fit of I had a bit of a business background and, and, and or business education. I knew the market and what the market was looking for. And so I started in 1987, entry level, working for the owner company. This maker was a small company who had maybe 30 employees or something like that. And over the decades, we learned how to market to independent artists. We upgraded our quality. We upgraded our customer service. When the technology evolved, we evolved with it because we, you know, our philosophy was not we're a record pressing plant. Our philosophy is we help artists get their music to market. And so regardless of the format, we're going to help them get it to market. So when CDs came around, we started offering CDs. Um, and then, you know, in 1999, a little, and this maker started growing as we got better, our, our name got out there more. And uh, in 1999, a little company called Napster came onto the scene. Mm -hmm. And, and all of a sudden now music was free, like it or not, music was free, right? And music did not require a physical product anymore. And so I looked at that and I was like, holy moly, if we don't figure out how to do this and offer this and monetize this, offer artists a way to make money from this, we are going to be a dinosaur as a physical product. What what was your position at the company when Napster rolled out? Because you're CEO now, and where did where did you start? I was probably marketing director at that okay. time, okay, and responsible for marketing for customer service uh, and and for sales already. Of course, there was no way to monetize Napster, and uh, so what what I did was I found a, a little company called CD Baby that is now a big company, um, and at the time CD Baby this was before you could make money from downloads. This was before the iTunes store. Uh, CD Baby was selling independent artist CDs online through their store. And I thought, you know what? If I can't monetize downloads, if I partner with CD Baby, at least I have a place to send our clients where they can sell their product online, physical product. And so we made a deal and then in two th to send our clients there. And in 2004, as the Apple store was getting ready to be launched, CD Baby's owner, a gentleman by the name of Derek Sivers, digitized his full CD collection, every title in his catalog he digitized, put it on a couple of hard drives, delivered it to Cupertino, uh, where Apple headquarters is, and now all of a sudden, CD Baby was in the digital distribution business. It was, I think, the first, um, maybe together with The Orchard, 
in the digital distribution game. And uh, so time goes on. Um, in 2006, the owner of Dismakers, a guy by the name of Morris Ballon, uh, who's, who's been a great mentor to me, he was in his upper 60s and he decided I need to, you know, like a typical entrepreneur, he, you know, his wealth was the business he owned. He didn't have a lot of cash in the bank. It was just the value of the business as it had grown. And so he, he was looking at retiring somewhere in a not too distant future. And he decided he wanted to, as, as, as they say colloquially, take some chips off the table. And so he sold a majority uh, ownership interest in the business to a private equity group in New York. And that opened the door. That was, so that was 2006. These guys came to me and I became president of the company in January of 2007. And they came to me and they said, you know, you don't just have to grow through marketing. We have access to financing. If there are any companies you're interested in buying that you think are a good fit, we'll help. And so, you know, I, I, I looked around, you know, I really liked iTunes, but we couldn't afford to buy Apple. And <laughs> missed, it, missed it by that much, really. You were close, yes. probably, you know. But, uh, but, but CD Baby was right there. And I had a great relationship with Derek Sivers. I started to, you know, we would talk three, four times a year about just the state of industry in general and our business relationship, what we're doing together. And he, uh, at the end of every conversation, I started to say, hey, Derek, if you're ever tired of running this baby, call me. You know, I'm interested in having a conversation. Maybe I can buy it. And so that ended up happening. In 2008, we acquired CD Baby, right as the whole stock market was sliding into an abyss with the Great Recession. And, you know, we, we had to cut costs. We had to, you know, lay off a bunch of people. It was a super, super scary time, you know, in the history of the company. But we made it through. We invested a lot in CD Baby and growing that business. The business started doing really well. We added a book component, trying to do what CD Baby did for musicians, doing that for independent authors who want to write their own their, their own book and publish their own book, and that's called Book Baby. Mm -hmm. A few years later, we started a little merch company uh, called Merchly. And uh, last year, there was a 2018, you know, in 2000, the music industry, if I can diverge for a second, because it's relevant, the music industry revenues between the year 2000 and the year 2016 or 2015 dropped by 75% right. as the market moved away from physical product towards downloads, which were, of course, as everybody knows, heavily pirated. So the industry in that transition from physical to download lost a ton of revenue. When streaming started really picking up, the, the brilliance of streaming is that even though you're paying for it, like your cable bill, it's just something that gets automatically paid and so the streaming and the consumption in streaming feels free. Mm -hmm. But every time, right? Because every extra song you listen to, if I listen to 10 songs today or 20 songs today, it costs me no more, right? And so all, the, all those subscriptions that kept building and building and building by 2016 stopped the decline in music industry revenues. And by 2017, industry revenues were growing at, I think, 6 or 8%. By 2018, industry Revenues were growing at double digits and CD Baby started getting a lot of interest from investors who were saying, do you want to buy this? And, um, or do you want to sell? We want to buy this. Do you want to sell? And uh, we were still owned by a private equity group, a second private equity group. And, uh, you know, I, I had a conversation with Tracy Maddox, who was and still is CD Baby's CEO. And we decided it was a good time to, to do that because private equity companies look to buy, but ultimately to make their profit, look to sell a company. And we thought it was a good time. So we went to market with the company and the buyer ended up being a partner, an existing partner of CD Baby, um, uh, a company called Downtown Music Publishing, which has a division called Song Trust that does publishing administration for independent songwriters and artists. And um, they are, they were, they were a great fit, but they were not interested in any of the physical products. They were not interested in CDs. 
They were not interested in the books. They were not interested in the merch. They were mm-hmm. only interested in the digital distribution and YouTube and other monetization parts of the business. And so I got together with my exec team in New Jersey, where we are located, where we actually run Disc Makers and Book Baby and Merchly, And we negotiated that we as the exec team would buy these divisions um, so that the digital sale transaction would go on. And so that, you know, as as I said jokingly uh, at times, um, you know, I'm I'm the crazy guy who bought a CD factory in 2019 because, <laughs> um, uh, you know, that's that's how it ended up happening. But there's a real business here, right? There's still 280 employees that we have there. We still last year made and sold 25 million CDs to independent artists who are selling them at their gigs. Uh, and it's still a great way to make money from your music because the streaming payouts, as I'm sure you know, your, your listeners who are artists uh, have found the streaming payouts are tiny. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so that brings us to today. Basically, I, you know, we still have a strategic partnership with this, with CD baby. We can distribute artists product digitally through CD baby. Um, basically we'll, we'll get your materials there and then set up a basic CD baby account. And then from there you're managing directly with CD baby. So we make the process little easier to get on and um and that's that's basically that's basically where we are today up at least until march 11th right (laughs) when uh all of a sudden everything went crazy with with the coronavirus and um so that was that became a challenge an interesting um call out to you and your team specifically is that during this time you've, uh, to the best of my knowledge, you can speak better to this, and we are going to talk about the business case and and building your brand and stuff like that because I really want to get into that with you. But I, when I discovered this, it's totally worth noting. Your company refigured the manufacturing process, so now that you're during this time of the pandemic, and you know it's first week in May when you and I are having this conversation, we're all still at home for the most part, um, unless we're uh, yeah. able to work safely. And part of being able to work safely means that you have masks, that you have, um, you know, visors and things like that. And and your company is helping to manufacture some of this protective equipment now, the visors. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. You know, we were looking, obviously, our, the discs and the products that we make, the merch, uh, are used by independent artists, mostly to sell at their gigs. And when concert venues got shut down overnight, we lost like 70% of our revenue. And, um, and that was, you know, that was, a, that was a challenge and um, a major challenge. And we were in the process of trying to figure out how do we, you know, what do we got to do? Do we have to lay off 50% of our staff? And we started working through that. And one night my wife and I were watching the news and she says, and we're seeing the, the you know, news of the, you know, the desperate shortages of, of protective equipment. And my wife looks at me and says, Tony, can't you guys make some of this? And I, I was like, it was like a light bulb went on. I'm like, yes, we can. And so we, we shifted like literally overnight to uh, figuring out how to make these clear face shields that you see in all the video of nurses and doctors and people are doing testing, et cetera. And um, we've shipped half a million face shields and we're making, you know, 30,000 face shields a day at this point in time. And, uh, and, and that has been tremendously rewarding for us because a, it's allowed me to keep all my staff on board and B it allows us to actually make a, you know, positive constructive contribution in the crisis to helping keep people safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's this, uh, saying floating around life during wartime. It's like, well, what do you do? You know, of course, I, th- I think about the talking heads when I say life during wartime, but the, it's that same concept. It's like, well, everybody in whatever industry you're in, if you can contribute to the to the greater good, do. And if it means that you can keep your employees employed, do it. It's like now's not the time to run up the white flag and surrender. Now's the time for people to get creative, innovative and leadership to show through. And that was what struck me with your story basically 
kind of throughout your career and not to be a fanboy or anything, but I do, I do recognize like, I remember being a musician back in the eighties and the early nineties and the Tascam four track came out and that was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And because right. I didn't have to go to a professional studio for, and I had quality demos that weren't the radio shack cassette recorder, <laughs> you know, demo. And then, I've been there. yeah. And then the, um, you know, the singles, the the actual vinyl singles that was a big thing still the bigger singles and then still trying to figure out how to you know get your tracks on wax watching the transition to cd and vinyl go away you were right in the beginning of that like that's that's right. early 90s was when that huge shift yeah. completely yeah. Sw swapped everything and then and then the digital swap comes and then the streaming you mentioned something interesting about cable bill versus your streaming bill and there's a, I, I don't know much about the monetization of uh, cable, cable television or cable, cable, it's not even television, just, just cable services, Netflix or anything. But I do know that with most uh, streaming services, you only get paid if you get played. So whereas Netflix may have a show, it doesn't matter how many people really watch the show. You don't get paid as an actor or director or writer based on views you could just get paid contract for production musicians, and for Netflix musicians will typically uh, negotiate a flat fee to buy a certain movie or other piece of content right uh, as opposed to musicians who it it really does matter how many times people hit play or you know what playlist you're on or anything like that yeah and and it's got to be millions right yeah oh, yeah uh, millions of plays be, for for it to make a difference i mean to make to make a hundred dollars off of Spotify, you need something like twenty-five thousand streams. Yeah, that's a lot of streams. Yeah, right. That's if you if you if you do the math for a hundred dollars, twenty-five thousand streams. Uh, that's twenty-five hundred listens to your favorite ten-song album. Right? Yeah. <laughs> that's that's a lot of listens. Which is um, for an independent musician, you know, you, the break even, as I've talked to other musicians in the children's music market who still actually sell a lot of CDs because the mm -hmm. minivans all have CD players and yeah. kids really like physical products. That's why I want, that's one of the reasons why I think I always encourage children's musicians to make a CD, get a physical product because mm -hmm. there's still, I, I believe that that's still a open an open market for that. There's still opportunity there. So clearly, look, the, the, the role of the CD has changed over the past 20 years, right? I mean, the year 2000 was the peak of the CD from a volume perspective. We're 20 years in. The role has changed. The CD is no longer today a carrier medium for music specifically, right? Because the kids listen to it on Spotify, or as I know many little kids today, they're on YouTube, right? Mm -hmm. And and so uh, it's all on YouTube, it's all on Spotify. You don't need the CD to listen to the music. So the role of the CD has become really crucially a, a tool for artists to actually monetize their music in a significant way. If it takes 25,000 streams, to make a hundred dollars, to make a hundred dollars selling CDs at your concerts, you only need to sell ten. Mm -hmm. And so the so the the dynamic there, the the ratios are are hugely lopsided. Actually, in favor of having physical product to sell. And so when you're at your concert, if you autograph that CD, that that CD for for that kid and their parent. It's not about the songs that are on there. It's a memento that they will cherish for years, if not forever, right? Now, they may grow out of listening to your music at some point in time, but they will love that, that you have spent 30 seconds talking to them, saying hi, you dedicate something on the CD, you autograph it, and all of a sudden, you know, they love you. You have a fan who's going to listen to you for years and buy your product, stream your product, maybe buy your t-shirts, come to your concerts. 
And, uh, and, and so that is the role today of the CD. It's almost a souvenir on the way to helping you actually make a living as an artist. I find um, when I make CDs for my albums, I put them in, you know, those little uh, libraries, community libraries that they have? Uh-huh. Like you go to a uh-huh. neighborhood and there's like a little box there and it says free books, take a book, leave a book type thing. I always put okay. a couple CDs in there. And whenever I go and check back, they're always gone Hmm. because some grandparent or some parent sees this and is like, well, well, you know, why not? And that's just, if nothing else, I get CDs and just give them away as marketing at this point. If I can sell them, that's fantastic. Libraries are still buying CDs uh, in the children's music genre. But for the most part, it's like, they're almost as, uh, they cost almost as much as a nice a vinyl label or sticker to give away. And uh, yeah, I think that the value is still there as far as, as far as just a straight marketing agenda too. See, CDs can, can be really affordable, you know, depending on your budget. Uh, I mean, you can be in the CD game for, if you have a recording for under a hundred bucks. I mean, we have, you know, at this makers today, you can get 50 CDs in color printed jackets, for 99 bucks mm-hmm. or a hundred costs you, you know, 199 or a thousand. Well, a thousand in jackets cost you like 69 cents. I mean, you can give those out all day long mm-hmm. uh, at that price or mail them really affordably. And there still is, there still is market. People like to have stuff that's tactile and tangible. Mm-hmm. Now, not everybody wants CDs. That's true, but some people do. And so, you know, I hear that, ah, oh, my, you know, my fans are telling me they don't have a CD player anymore. And it's true. There are fans who don't have a CD player anymore, but there are many who still do. Right. And so one of the things for today's musician kind of philosophically is the, the revenue, uh, the, the avenues of revenue, the places and ways to make money are so disparate. There are so many. You want to try to figure out a way how to, and, and, and none of them are huge. So you want to try to figure out how do I leverage and make use of the most of these, leaving no money on the table so that in the aggregate, there's money for me to pay some bills. Mm-hmm. And CDs are one, one part of that puzzle. Are you pretty familiar with the uh, kindy or the children's music genre today? Um, you know, my children are young adults today and I'm, um, I don't have, uh, I don't have grandchildren yet. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I am a parent. And so I am, uh, I have a, uh, a basic familiarity, but not specific to today. Mm-hmm. Basic general familiarity. It's, uh, it's this wonderful, uh, kind of tight knit group of musicians and they're all, they're pretty much all independent. There's hardly any labels associated with children's music in, anymore. Uh, Amazon, every once in a while, they'll put put somebody out. If you right. if you can get on Disney, you know, oh man, you know that's that's amazing. Right. But even but even the the, the most no, successful I, I, yes, and we we deal we deal and work with a lot of the uh, children's music artists. Uh-huh to us for, for manufacturing. Yeah. So, but the, uh, one of the funny things about it is it's very similar, even though the buying, even though your target audience is children, you still have to go through parents to sell your product. And so it's not that dissimilar to punk rock, reggae, ska, country, anybody else. So from a big bucket perspective with your experience and knowledge, as far as witnessing groups that come back and keep reordering CDs as opposed to ones that don't, what are some of the success stories or some of the tactics that you would suggest for independent musicians to, uh, to at least pick up their stride a little bit? You know, it, it's the dynamic, obviously, in children's music are slightly different from the dynamics in music for teens, adults, etc. Because, you know, today, for example, social media features really prominently in most music marketing, but you may not be able to do it all that effectively if your your ultimate listeners are younger kids. 
but I think that I think the fundamentals that I see going going back to really really fundamental is you know what what do you need to do to build build an audience right it's write great songs you know that are, that are catchy uh, make great high quality recordings and give great shows and ultimately doing those things makes people talk whatever you know whatever way they talk whether it's online or offline um, making people have a great time a great experience relating to them will lead to you growing as an artist and so you know live performance features very prominently i think in in how most artists build their fan base uh build their revenue build their sales and build their brand but it it, it doesn't have to be right i mean in an, in a in a time in an era where you can't really perform live it's a matter of figuring out what are the channels and who are the people that i can partner with that i can network with to help get my music out to a potential audience in a potential market. Mm-hmm. You know, partnering with other artists is a great way. And traditionally the, the, the industry has always done that, right? It's called being an opening act for, <laughs> for another act. And, you know, there's artists that, that record, you know, two bands in similar genres may record each record a cover version of the other band's music and then get it out to their fans and say, hey, we recorded this art, a song from this artist, please check it out. And then, you know, that's a way to introduce fans, your fans to another artist and, you know, help kind of cross market and cross pollinate uh, similar, you know, fan base who like similar music to a new artist. I mean, those are obviously the fundamentals and you want to, you know, there, there is no rocket ship to go from starting out to the top, it, it, it's all, a, you know, a step-by-step-by-step, very incremental process where, you know, it, sometimes it doesn't look like you're making large gains. You know, you're gaining some listeners on Spotify or some subscribers on YouTube. It's something to just kind of keep, keep plugging away. And I think a lot of artists end up giving up or giving up hope sometimes too soon. Because it is a process that frequently takes you. I know on your uh, on the Disc Maker site you have a blog that is just chock full of all sorts of really basic business sense and 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 direction and and uh, suggestions that relate more to the business of trying to be a musician. How much do you think that that impacts? the success of an artist as far as how seriously they take it as a business? I think it's huge, right? Uh, Success is, you know, a combination of talent, drive, hustle, and luck, right? And, and, you know, if, if you're just talented, but you're not prepared to put in the work, it's, unless you're really lucky, uh, it's going to be, you know, really hard to to be successful and so so the business side it's the old cliche right if you're if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it you know same thing applies to your music if you put your song on spotify and nobody listens to it what you know what gain do you have from that and the answer is zero and so the business side is about getting people to hear your music and so you know i i I frequently advise artists, you should figure of the hours you spent, spend on music, composing, rehearsing, performing, recording, you should spend an equal number of hours on the business side, on promoting, on doing your social media networking, on building and maintaining community, communicating and engaging with fans, or if you're dealing with really young kids, with their parents, including through your email newsletters and what have you, uh, you know, figuring out, you know, the business side of calling promoters and calling, uh, you know, and contacting DJs and figuring out who can play my music so I can get 
some in front of some additional listeners. And so it, it's, it's essential. And many artists don't think it's that much fun, mm. right? They, they, they got into the music for the music, uh, for their love of music and not for their love of business. But one thing, you know, for me, if I can relate my personal experience, you know, I started in this business because I love music. I, I did, uh, if I can give myself some credit, I did realize it was going to be really hard to make a living being a punk rock drummer. And so I realized I needed a day <laughs> job, you know, but, but I found that coming up with marketing campaigns or when I'm writing an email to artists, I could get a similar reward from the creativity that is embedded in a lot of the business activities as I did from the creativity that comes with the music side. And so I, I think frequently artists don't give themselves the leeway, the permission, or, or, or they don't approach the business side enough as a creative endeavor, which it really is. I think in business, business is creative. I mean, you don't want your accountant to be creative, but besides that, business is creative and, and you just have to allow yourself to kind of tap into that creativity. You've made a career out of navigating difficult times and situations because as we talked about your history and when you got into it and then there was it was cool and you got to the you know five years into it and then there was change and then five years there was change and then five years a recession and then oh and then this you know your ability to overcome these obstacles both in a in a in the music world specifically in the physical uh, product category, you know, it's challenging. Mm-hmm. You found a way to always navigate these so far and come through them. And even this thing with COVID that's happening and being able to retool your facility, you're like, oh, we're down 70%. Let's keep people busy. Let's, fi- let's figure this out. I think that a lot of musicians right now, uh, especially kids musicians, because most kids musicians, there's if because we recognize there's no money in streaming, there's really no money in CDs, it's all about live performance. Most of the peers that I have who are doing this full time have just lost every gig for, yeah. for, for until we don't know when. And so their entire livelihood is gone. They're looking, they're trying to figure out where to find the hope, how to retool, where to, where to put their energy now to keep their career, their dream and their passion going. Right. Uh, your story it seems like you've hit those sort of walls a few times in your career and you found a way to push through. And you've done that on the business side, but I have to also imagine that this is a personal side. At some point, it would have been easier for you to be like, yeah, you know what? We don't need to buy disc makers. We can let this go. I can go find a career. Your LinkedIn profile's got the cred. You could go pretty much into any other industry right now and do quite well. What keeps you in the music business and what would you suggest for people out there who can't play any more library gigs? Don't give up hope. That's my that's my first my first and and, and biggest message. You know, I uh, I have one of the reasons. You know, my career is unusual. I started Disc Makers in 1987. It's 2020, and I'm still here. This is the only place I've ever worked, and I think. Partly that that longevity has been a major contributor to my success because I feel I can play the long game better than anybody. Mm-hmm. And the way I have the, the the I have developed my ability to play the long game is if the outlook for the next year is bad, I look three years out and I think, what's this going to look like in three years? And frankly, for most of us for virtually all of us in virtually every situation, three years is a long enough window to make any changes and to turn around any downward cycle. So, so that is how I've gotten, I've gotten through some, you know, the recession of 2000, I've gotten through, uh, you know, the challenges with 11, I've gotten through the great recession and I hope and anticipate to get through this challenge. I, I don't think these have made my career uh, as as you mentioned, but I think they've they've helped me stay in the game. 
I, I read a book many years ago. Uh, uh, you know, I'll read books about music. I read books about business. I read biographies. I read all kinds of books. This was a, a kind of a biography by Lou Gerstner, who was a longtime CEO of IBM. And he had the saying that market share moves in a down economy. That when the economy is bad, it may not feel like you're going forward. It may feel like you're going sideways or you're even going backwards. But others around you doing similar things may be going backwards even more. And so his, his advice was, you keep working on what you're doing. Keep trying, keep testing, keep evolving, keep marketing, keep developing your product. In, in the case of a musician, that would be keep writing, keep recording. Because when the economy turns back around, if you've kept doing all of those things, and those around you have not, you have a leg up and you will come out of it with more positive momentum. And so, so that, that's, that's honestly, that's what, you know, the, the old Winston Churchill saying when in uh, 2008, when we just bought CD Baby, within five, six months of us buying it, I had laid off a hundred people because of the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. And that famous Winston Churchill saying of, when you're going through hell, keep moving. That literally kept me going uh, day after day. And, and so that would be the advice that I have for musicians today who are dealing with really challenging situations. If you're a musician where you're doing music for a passion and you have a day job, you're, you may still have your day job or you may not have your day job. If you're a musician who was doing this for a living, you may have lost 80% of your income from live recording. And so those are really, really challenging times personally, uh, you know rent payment, food on the table, all of those things are, you know, are, are, are not to be taken for granted. And so the question is, can you push through that today and think about what can I keep doing? I may not be able to make money from doing a Zoom concert, but I can keep my name in front of my listeners, my fans. I can keep putting out new music. I can, you know, do Facebook live concerts. I can I can do all those things so that I'm still out there. And at the very least, even if I'm not making money, I'm getting some artistic gratification, that buzz that you feel internally when you're out performing. I can feel that and feel good about it and know that I am not letting my fans forget about me mm -hmm. so that they can go back out to concerts. They can come and see me. Don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. Tony, thank you so much for the time today. I see a lot of folks don't take the business side seriously. It took me a long time to figure out the business side. That's kind of why I'm doing this podcast is because mm -hmm. I think that there's a wealth of information out there that people want to share. People like you, veterans in the industry, who, who, who could say things like, dude, get a business plan. Hey, you probably want to get an LLC. Look, you need insurance. There's all these aspects, all the behind the scenes stuff that isn't as fun as ripping a guitar solo, but yeah. eh, you want to do this. It's, it's as if sometimes maybe not more important to, uh, to make sure that you have this going on. So yeah, as musicians, uh, let me rephrase that as human beings, we frequently gravitate to what comes easy and the rest, the rest, you know, uh, feels like work. And, you know, I have, I have, uh, at work, I can tell my people, hey, it's called work for a reason. But if you're an artist, right, <laughs> it's a little different. But there is there is clearly a need. And, and, and again, back to my earlier point, I think if you allow yourself to approach work as something else that's creative, just, just change your mindset about it. Because many musicians come in with it like, ooh, getting gigs, ooh, that, you know, I don't like that. That's no fun. Uh, getting airplay, that's no fun. Uh, learning about how to get onto playlists, uh, that's work. That's no fun. But if you think about creative ways, if you try different ways to, you know, approach playlist curators and what have you and see what works and see what doesn't work and learn from that and, and treat it as a creative endeavor, it becomes, if not outright pleasurable, certainly a lot less painful. <laughs> 
Thank you so much. Big props to you for shifting your production, not laying off people, helping out with the cause to keep us safe and keep us moving forward. I'd love to talk to you again at some point, maybe in six months or a year. We can have you on again. We can do another sort of state of the industry, state of affairs, see what's going on, see what's going on in in your world with physical uh, uh, disc creation and and whatnot. You should be getting an order from me, hopefully in December. I'm going to be making some new CDs. So. So keep your ears open for awesome. that. Awesome, definitely. <laughs> Let me know. And and your main advice for everybody is uh, your main advice for young bands is get a manager right away, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know. I always advise artists. Nobody has as much at stake in your success as you do. So do as much as you can yourself before you get to anybody else. So yes, I know you were I know you were just poking me there. I was poking I just see a little you. bit, but that's all right. All right, all right. <laughs> Thanks, Tony. All right. My pleasure. What a super fun conversation with Tony Van Veen. I really enjoyed that. And um oh look, different music. Say what we're gonna do now, we're gonna play some of my music since Tony's not a musical guest. And since I couldn't track down a copy of any of his punk music stuff, I decided to throw in one of mine uh, for my album Bubbles. It's Skeleton Red. Okay, so yep, 
Uh, you know what? That's my podcast. Every once in a while, I can play my own music. If somebody doesn't, you know, have music, nope, you can listen to mine. <laughs> so, uh, again, super thanks to Tony for coming on and talking to uh, to us about state of affairs. You know, it's like this is the, the time of, of home quarantine still. Uh, you may be able to hear in the background. That's my son. He's practicing piano right now. So as, even as we try and do these things, life goes on around us. Things are not normal. Whatever that means. Things will never be normal. I don't know. But I don't know. Maybe we you know. So, but there was something. There was, a, there was a thing that I was thinking about. And that was that, um, you know, I think I, on my wall downstairs, I have uh, three of these frames, these discs. Uh, from the three albums that I've done uh, as Cowboy Andy and the Salamanders. And uh, they're, from, they're from disc makers. And I always pay extra, the extra, you know, 20, 30 bucks, whatever it is. And they they mount them. They put the CD in a frame with a cover. And they, they send this little gold sticker. And you know, I have those hanging downstairs um, in the hallway. All, and the three of them kind of lined up there, one for each album. And I'm, I'm, I'm fiercely proud of those things. Because I was able to do that. I was able to, to put those up there. My, you know, my, my family walks by or, or guests come over and they're like, hey, oh, are these your albums? Like, yeah, those are my albums. I, that was a thing I did. And through no small part, Tony's kind of responsible for that too. It would have been easy for the industry to totally give up on CDs. There are other places where we can have CDs manufactured. Disc Makers, though, is one of the big ones. And because they've stuck it out, because they've been creative and tried to find a way to make that product still viable and support musicians and independent artists, it's still there. We can still do this. We can still send in our files and get a CD made and give it to our fans. And I, you know what? I think that that's kind of cool. And so, again, thanks to Tony for coming on Barn Banter. If you want to come on Barn Banter, go to the website, cowboyandy.com. Send me a note. You too can hear high praise. I'm your host, Cowboy Oh, let's sing a song about how we're all the same. How we all like snacks and cuddles, and we all like playing games. We all like to be hugged and loved up in our beds at night. Tall or small, boy or girl, brown, pink or black or white. Oh, 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 let's sing a song about how we're all the same. We all like snacks and cuddles And we all like playing games We all like to be hugged and loved Tucked in our beds at night Tall or small, boy or girl Brown, pink or black or white Ho, ho, ho Let's sing a song about How we're all the same How we all like snacks and cuddles And we all like playing games We all like to be hugged and loved Tucked in our beds at night 